Welcome to Season 4 of Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad, I'm an Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and I'm a practicing hemonk doc here at UCSF. If you like this podcast, follow us on Twitter, email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com, and you can back us at patreon.com. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in plenary session. I'm joined via Zoom by friend of the show, Zeb Yamrojik. Zeb, it's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. You're one of our most favorite guests. Thanks, Anaya. It's great to speak with you again. People have really enjoyed these conversations, and I appreciate your time and thankful that you're coming back on. Um, When I emailed you to schedule this, I thought to myself, hmm, there's a chance we won't have much to talk about. But then, of course, <laughs> we have a new variant. And we have a lot to talk about. So I guess I was wondering when, I mean, where to begin. But I guess the first thing is, of course, the folks in South Africa did, I think, a wonderful job in being able to sequence this variant and reporting it to the international community. And they got the reward they deserve, which is a blanket travel ban from all the other nations. So I wonder if you might want to walk us through Um, your thoughts on the initial reporting, what we knew at the time, and the global response of a travel ban. Yeah, I think there's lots to talk about there. Um, But to take one step back. Yes. I think that just about all the panic surrounding variants has been shown to be unjustified since the very start of the pandemic. I mean, people seem to have very short memories. We're, We're in the situation of the kind of story of the boy who cried wolf. You know, initially we had the so-called UK variant, uh, mm. renamed Alpha. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone said uh, it was going to be, you know, it was more transmissible. Clearly it is more transmissible if it takes over the majority of the, of the transmission. But there were all kinds of other theories that it would be, you know, significantly more deadly. There would be massive vaccine escape. Uh, we're going to have to reset all our policies to zero or whatever. None of that happened. Uh, then there was Delta and there was an even bigger narrative about Delta and, and it did turn out to be more transmissible. But... You know, initially people said it's able to infect children more efficiently, it's harming children more and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, None of that turned out to be true. Um, And uh, now we have another variant and we we don't even know yet, um, you know, what it's going to turn out to do in the population. Um, But we need to start out with some some reasonable priors, you know. And one of the key things I think is often missing from this discussion is that, you know, there's this thing called the epidemiological triad. Uh, where when we make an observation about what's happening with an infectious disease and some other types of um, of illnesses, there's a triad between the host or the population, the virus, and the environment. And uh, it's often hard to tell which one of those factors is most responsible for the changes that we've seen. Uh, and there's a tendency, because we have genetic sequencing of the virus or whatever, to put this all down to a change in the virus. But Because it's what you often- can measure. It's what you can That's measure. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, it's, yeah, it's much harder to measure um, changes in the population, you know, but just for example, if we detect a variant uh, in winter, for example, it's always going to look much more transmissible because the environment's changed. And I think some of those initial observations with Delta, where it looked like it was kind of more infectious in children and so on, I think that was because the population had changed. You know, Delta was detected uh, in winter or in you know, northern winter 2020, 2021. By that time, old people had mostly been either infected or vaccinated. Um, you know, young people had got sick of, uh, you know, following extreme pandemic rules. Mm-hmm. They were interacting with each other more. And so it, uh, the, the observation suggested that maybe it was more uh, uh, infectious 
in children, but or, or maybe even more dangerous, but that didn't turn out to be the case. And so that's the way the population has changed. And the population has changed a lot now too. The, the whole world's population is much more immune to COVID-19 than it was one year ago, or the, you know, when we had the last variant. So lots of things have changed. Um, and there's, you know, there's one other thing that can change in addition to that triad, which is how doctors respond. You know, so when we use hospitalization as a measure of how severe something is, also doctors' behavior has changed. You know, doctors at the start of an, of an epidemic or pandemic are more likely to admit patients to hospital, admit them to ICU, and it looks very dangerous. But as they learn more about it, more about managing the condition, they change their behavior. And so not all of our kind of data gives us a true reading of what's happening. And it's certainly not all true. It's all, not all due to the variant. But then to come to you know, Omicron in South Africa, yeah, I mean, uh, maybe an appropriate response to this would have been to praise, you know, the amazing genomic sequencing efforts that are, that are taking place in South Africa and, and indeed other parts of sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and, uh, you know, thank them for kind of alerting us to this kind of new observation. Uh, but yeah, travel bans, I mean, I've always been against travel bans. The World Health Organization you know, has, has just about always been against travel bans. Um, and, you know, uh, the worst kind of travel ban, obviously, is a discriminatory one. So one that one that is imposed on, uh, you know, countries, uh, you know, low and middle income countries, when there's every reason to think that, you know, by the time they've detected a new variant, the chances are that it's probably seated in, in almost almost every well connected country in the world. Um, and travel bans are incredibly regressive because. Gosh, people who are traveling right now during a pandemic, they've got pretty good reasons to travel normally, you know. Right. Uh, they're going to see sick family members. They're sometimes uprooting their entire family's lives and moving them somewhere else. Um, and so I don't think travel bans really have ever been justified, not to mention the fact that, uh, you know, there's all these benefits of having linked populations worldwide, um, including immunological benefits. We, we kind of want populations to have matched immunity to the kind of not not just COVID-19 but to viruses in general that are circulating and, and cutting populations off from one another has a whole range of harms um, and we definitely shouldn't be imposing those harms on on low and middle income countries uh, especially so, like, we're trying selectively to, yeah yeah we're trying to help uh, global public health um, yeah I think that's a that's a that's a global public health disaster right there Wow, there's so much there. And I'm glad you backed up and started with this broader point. Um, and I want to just make one point and see what you think. Um, you know, I think people have a difficult time in thinking about transmissibility when you retrospectively look at data sets. So I'll give it a little analogy and, and let me see what you think. Um, imagine there's five coins and they're each a different color, red, yellow, blue, green. And every time the coin lands heads, you get one more coin and you flip all the coins at once. So you flip them once, a couple of heads, you get two reds, two greens. You flip them again, a couple of heads, you get another couple of yellows, couple of blues. And over time, you'll see a population of all different colors, like a bag of Skittles. And um, that's they all have the same probability of landing heads each turn. And, uh, they're, uh, and every time it happens, they double. Now imagine the same experiment, but we use a six-sided dice. And every time you land on a six, you get six, um, and you get more of the dice. Well, now it's much more volatile um, because it's possible that with a few turns you'll get a mix of dice, but it's also very possible that two lucky breaks for white and white is going to dominate. Now imagine a 20-sided dice and the 20-sided dice, you get 20 more dice if it lands on the 20, you know, that color, the, the 20 or whatever. Um, and, and that's one of the things about SARS-CoV-2 that's unique. It's that it is pr prone to super spreader events. 
it's not that every person spreads to one other person. It's that a few people spread to a lot of people. And so when you have a data set and you look retrospectively and you ask, is the dominant variant more transmissible? Mathematically, that will always be true in that data set. But does it actually grab on the receptor in your nasopharynx more tightly than the other one? And the answer to that might not be. It might just be a couple lucky early chance events that gave it an unbeatable dominance in the population. And I think yeah. that was something we didn't under people. You know, that was a point that only like one clever person on the internet made David Dowdy from Johns Hopkins University, you know, a couple clever people made this point with um, Alpha. But the initial reports from the UK were that Alpha was, quote, more contagious. But of course, it was predicated on the fact that it had already gained dominance. And perhaps some of that was randomness. And now we know it's actually quite, quite comparable our, our coefficient to the original strain. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, there's so many variables here. And yet yeah. one of them is stochasticity or randomness. Yes. Um, and you're absolutely right that uh, that kind of founder effect of kind of some multiple super spreading events. It's not unique to SARS-CoV-2. I mean, SARS-1 is the same. Um, you know, tuberculosis is the same. You know, the, a minority of people are responsible for the, for most uh, spreading events. And we see that with some other infectious diseases. Um, and so it can be different, different, difficult to separate those things out. And I, you know, one thing that's very problematic here, ethically speaking, is when people are labeled as super spreaders. And it's, often, mm -hmm. it's often implied that there's something about their bodies that makes them more likely to spread. Or we say that the virus is more transmissible. There's something about the virus. But the, real, the biggest determinant of how many people get infected is, uh, yeah, how many people are in a tight indoor space that's crowded with one person who's infected. Because someone who's, got a, who's the most infectious person or has the most infectious virus but doesn't have contact with anyone in the right kind of circumstance isn't going to spread anything um and yeah transmissibility well the other thing that has changed about the population by the time a new variant emerges because this has this takes time is that the population has a large amount of immunity to the old variants um and what you know one thing that's really crazy in this area is that we know a lot. We, we know a lot about immunity to coronaviruses. Maybe not, maybe not as much as we should have known by the time this pandemic emerged. But, you know, coronaviruses were named at a place called the UK Common Cold Unit, uh, where they were in the 1970s and 80s in particular, infecting people with common cold coronaviruses. Uh, and and they, even did, they even did some great experiments in the 80s where they got someone, they got people, they infected them with one variant of a common cold coronavirus. Then they got them back one year later and they infected them either with the same variant or with a slightly different variant. Yeah. And they showed that there was significant cross protection between the variants, uh, but that you did get more breakthrough symptoms with the, you know, slightly different variant. And so, you know, that's, that's the kind of prior that we should expect with co with coronavirus immunity, that a immunity wanes over time, that B uh, reinfection is going to be a common, probably universal phenomenon. And it's going to take place every one to two years. Uh, and that C yeah, as the virus mutates, there probably is, you know, slightly more infection, but it doesn't mean that you reset your immunity to zero. And that's what's really problematic is that when when a new variant emerges, uh, people say, oh, you know, there might be zero immunity. And they say, science starts from scratch. We don't know anything about this variant. Actually, we know a lot about it. It's very similar to all the other variants. Um, it's very similar to kind of baseline COVID, um, SARS-CoV-2. Um, and you know, there's not going to be that big a difference. Um, you know, the, the likelihood is uh, that there's not going to be that big a difference and that the immune system is going to largely recognize uh, this new virus if it's seen the old virus either in a vaccine or a previous infection. 
The travel ban is particularly silly, I think, because many people point out the first truth, which is by the time you institute it, the virus is already there. The second problem with it is that they always institute it three days from now. They never do it right that moment. They want to give a chance for wealthy people, of course, to come back. You know, obviously, we can't be crazy here. So in those three days, you just flood the airports to rush back to your home country. So you may spread it more. Um, and then the other challenge, I mean, what it really does is it changes the marginal seed load that they're potentially, theoretically, it changes the, of course, it's already in our country, but it'll change the seed load by some factor. But the price is, of course, colossal disruption to the lives of human beings and geopolitical con co uh, conflicts and geopolitical turmoil. And it is almost never worth that price. Um, I guess what's, what strikes me the most about it is that I feel like we've learned nothing throughout this pandemic, that it is not very effective, and that politicians do it because it's a way to look like you're doing something. Um, and so they, they, they capitulate to the theater. But I guess I'm curious to see what you think about, like, do, I mean, do we have a problem in the media ecosystem where there are there are some people who profit from the fear and profit from these bans, they profit from the disruption? Do they have too dominant a role or what, what is it just the base human fear making us do silly things? Um, I mean, my view on this is that the media is 100 percent complicit, <laughs> you know, and unfortunately, the ecosystem is set up in such a way that fear and outrage drive um, clicks and readership and so on. Um, and it's very easy for a reasonable view to be drowned out by kind of fear-mongering. And that goes for the experts who are speaking with the media um, or so-called experts, uh, as well as um, the media the media themselves. Um, and, you know, they've also been complicit in not criticising government policy. I think um, in many countries, the media has not been fulfilling its role. Um, and I guess, you know, it must be hard being a journalist too, because many of them have been locked up in tours. You know, the only access they have to the outside world is, re is reading all these kind of fear-mongering articles. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's tended to ratchet up the fear. And, and the worst thing is that we should, be in, we should be in a situation now where the fear levels are coming down, uh, where we realise that the marginal benefit of every additional intervention that we do now is getting smaller and smaller right. and smaller right. as more and more people are immune. Right. Um, the marginal harms of everything that we do or the relative harms are going up. And right. so we need to be even more cautious about instituting things now. And we also need to be less fearful. I mean, this isn't a popular view, but, uh, you know, once your country is like highly immune from either vaccination or infection or both, you should welcome every new variant. I mean, you want you want it to be coming in, in some ways. You want it to be in your population as soon as possible, um, because you know if we've learned one thing, or if we, you know, if there's one thing we should have learned about this, which is that when it comes to respiratory virus pandemics, you can run, but you can't hide. You know, uh, unfortunately, we don't have any sterilizing vaccines, and so ultimately, we're just going to have to accept that more and more variants are going to evolve, and the sooner your population you know, develops immunity to the new variant by exposure to infection. Um, and you want to minimize the morbidity of that, you know, however you can. But once the population is already immune, then the sooner you get exposed, you know, the better it's going to be. And the longer you wait, the worse it's going to be. That's so interesting. Two observations on these points. One, the media 
and their unilateral dominance. There's an American comedian, of course, I think he is South African, Trevor Noah, and he made a quip that, um, you know, he said that, of course, the South African scientists are reporting that most cases of Omicron variant are quite mild. On the other hand, the CEO of Moderna, who stands to make a few billion dollars, says you definitely need a new vaccine. So who am I to believe? Um, and his point was, of course, this guy's conflicted, deeply conflicted. And of course, the CEOs of Pfizer and Moderna, their business plan is the yearly vaccine or even more frequent if they could have it um, and sell that to government so government stock pilot, etc. It's to create the fear. Um, in the U.S. media, he was widely criticized as being sort of um, fueling anti-vax rhetoric and sentiment by saying that. Um, and to me, the revealing part of that was that uh, he's a comedian. We won't even let him joke about it because the media is so complicit with the narrative that boosters forever, they don't even allow a debate anymore that they have been sort of uh, bamboozled into this idea. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean you could contrast that with uh, Professor Sarah Gilbert at Oxford, who was involved in the AstraZeneca team. Uh, and, you know, um, I, I don't think the profit motive there is so strong, especially Correct. not from, especially not from the team that's involved um, in that vaccine. Um, and yeah, it's had its problems, but it's also, you know, produced kind of enormous global health benefits. And very early on in this kind of immune escape, variant panic. Sarah Gilbert, who's, you know, should be, is a hero of this, of this pandemic, came out and said, I'm not at all worried that this uh, virus is going to evolve to be able to uh, undermine the effectiveness of vaccines, especially with regards to individual protection against severe disease. Uh, and this is someone who's worked on respiratory viruses for decades, uh, who's, a, who's a world expert. And that's an example of kind of a you know, reasonable science-based claim that's kind of should should cut away all the fear, um, and should get should get away from this idea that we need to be yeah having more vaccines and more boosters all the time, but it gets drowned out by by other other narratives and like you say some of those narratives are ultimately at base motivated by profit um, rather than benefit. The next point you made was sort of about the usefulness in some circumstances of being exposed to infectious disease. Recently, I was talking to a colleague and he said that, you know, as, as unpleasant as it is to mask all the time in the hospital and, you know, never really see your patient's face, sometimes for the entirety of their care, their journey, um, he said that there's a benefit, which is, you know, it's going to disrupt flu. And he said, you know, to be honest with you, I'm surprised that we were so cavalier about flu. And there's a part I concede to him, which is that I'm surprised we were always so cavalier about letting people work in the hospital who were feeling ill. And I guess in part because they pose a threat to others, but also in part because that's not a very compassionate thing to do when you're not feeling good to force you to like do a hard day's labor. You should go and rest and everyone will be better as a result. Um, but I was troubled by his assertion, I guess a few things. One, I think people who attribute the fact we didn't have a quote-unquote flu season last year to just the cloth mask, I think, are making a fallacy. Because one, yes, you did. I, I saw you were wearing the cloth mask, so that might have contributed. But there's one other thing I noticed, which was the entire disruption of global commerce and travel. That was the big other sort of confounder variable there, disrupting all children's school and education and keeping them apart and disrupting all global travel. That may have also disrupted the chain. That's one. Two, when it does catch up with you it's going to take twice the toll because you're been vulnerable i told him the story about the people who survived a prior flu pandemic and the only and, and older people did better because they had been exposed to some of those flu antigens in the past but i guess my question to you first question is um 
these people who have gotten it into their head that we can avoid infectious disease forever, you're shaking your head. Um, one is the empirical question of, is that true? But then maybe there's also the, um, the, uh, the utilitarian question of what is desirable? What is best? And what are your thoughts on this issue? Uh, yeah, so um, can we avoid infectious diseases forever? Um, uh, that depends, but, um, but, not, but not respiratory viruses. Uh, you know, and, and until such a time as we get a really good sterilizing vaccine against something like um, you know, every strain of influenza um, and you know, common cold coronaviruses and RSV, um, we can't avoid uh, these uh, pathogens. And um, yeah, this, this kind of idea that people have that non-pharmaceutical interventions were responsible for crushing, uh, you know, RSV and influenza, I think that's a big mistake. And one, the biggest factor I think that people don't take into account there is the fact that there's a lot of herd immunity against those viruses in the general population, like the example you gave about the people who were infected with a certain strain of influenza when they were children, then they come to be older people, then a similar strain of influenza uh, emerges, and those people are relatively protected even by their very distant exposure. And that tells you there's a lot of herd immunity in the population. Um, again, you know, herd immunity is not just about hitting some threshold, it's also about, you know, protecting people against severe disease and so on. Um, and so, when you've already got much of the population who have immunity against, say, RSV or a strain of influenza and so on, uh, and then you disrupt the whole, the whole world, uh, you reduce international travel, which is a source of new strains and variants, um, and uh, you do some other things in society, and then on top of that, you have some non-pharmaceutical interventions, uh, yeah, those viruses will disappear for a while. Um, but, you know, uh, in highly dense um, say slum populations in low-income countries, uh, many of those viruses are going to continue to circulate. It's, it's unlikely that they're going to be disrupted. And those are large populations who can maintain viruses for a long period of time, which means that it's practically inevitable that they're going to re-emerge. Um, and yeah, I've written you know quite a bit on Twitter about rebound epidemics, um, and I've got a paper about that under review at the moment. Um, and the idea here is that, yeah, Two years without these viruses means that there's less people immune and there's a whole lot of children who've been born, they've never been exposed. Uh, and we're gonna see very large epidemics of those viruses. And you better hope, you better hope that we're gonna see some of those in summer. Because if we get, if in the next couple of winters, we get some winters where there's there's some post-vaccination COVID-19, there's some, there's very bad levels of influenza, there's RSV, we could be looking at you know very large winter pressures and morbidity. And that's an unintended consequence of the excessive response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's a harm. And unfortunately, it, you know, for viruses like RSV and influenza, it's a harm that's going to fall on young children uh, in particular, uh, relatively speaking, um, and also on older adults, the kinds of people we were kind of protecting from COVID-19. But we can't, we can't hide from these viruses forever. And so uh, the best if you look back in time before we had vaccines, you know, epidemiologists were thinking about this kind of thing. And they suggested that what you want to have is, you know, a small amount of exposure. You want to have low risk individuals uh, getting exposed, developing some immunity, and then you can have a population that's relatively protected. Um, but you can't stamp out the viruses and you can't stamp out um, morbidity and mortality among vulnerable people entirely um, unless you have a sterilizing vaccine. Which I think is not plausible or it's certainly not here yet and if it's possible is beyond my grasp but i have a feeling that it may not be possible with this type class of virus 
Um, and which is made in part have been the reason why drug development in this space, uh, vaccine development or common cold has always been so elusive. Let me ask you this question about the response. I think one of the reasons why, I mean, one of the things you said was in many ways, our pandemic response was excessive. In other ways, it was delinquent. Um, so I want to wonder if we could play with that a little bit, the way it was delinquent and the way it was excessive. How was it delinquent? I see. So one of my theories is that if you had, if you had a system in place that was really well functioning and communication was robust, what might have happened is the first person who brought the virus out of the Wuhan lab, I mean, from the wet market, from the wet, sorry, from the wet market, <laughs> wherever it came from, from the wet market or the lab, the first few people who had it, the moment somebody recognized it was a problem, you might have really aggressively tried to suspend travel from that region and tried to uh, curtail its spread before it really exploded into the human population. That was a missed opportunity. I mean, maybe in part it was because it occurred in an authoritarian environment like China, a place that's not prone for communication. Maybe in part it was failures from chronic underfunding of WHO and CDC, and maybe it was from some sort of bad politics that led to that that error. Um, but also, maybe it was also an error that, you know, it's difficult to do that. I mean, it's not always possible to extinguish viruses when they just escape um, from wherever they came from. Uh, but many people, I think, fe felt like you know, much like um, uh, like when you first drop the ball, you feel the urge to try to fix the problem by doing a lot more of the thing that would have worked well in the beginning. Um, and I think a lot of what the policy that followed was, I guess, excessive and delusional in the sense that, I mean, it made sense to put some changes to society while a vaccine was being developed. I struggle to understand disruptions to society once a highly effective vaccine has been developed. I think the price of that doesn't is not offset by the benefit. I think that the great Barrington Declaration authors, you know, proposed something that was actually reasonable. Of course, they were demonized and labeled, I don't know, um, evil people. Um, and I had written down here that I wanted to talk to you about, but I'm not sure it's true anymore. You know, I've always been a progressive in the sense that I'm someone left of center who believe in progressive policies because I think society will be better off if we give more options for people who are born with less. And so much of our fate is determined by simply who our parents were. And to me, progressivism was about trying to make it more play, equal playing field. But I do think progressivism in the course of the pandemic has failed spectacularly because it's not really good in places of scientific uncertainty. It brings a sort of strong moralizing component to questions that are scientifically unsettled. And in fact, probably if anything, stifled real debates and actually may have been a force of wrong. But on the other hand, I'm not so sure right, hard right politics was, was the answer either. So I guess my question to you is two part. One, what do you think we, where was the ball dropped? And then where was the excess? And then the next question of, were there different errors made by different political philosophies or did everyone make the same error? Yeah, okay, so great set of questions. Um, I guess first thing, you know, could this have been contained or prevented? Um, you know, there's, there's some facts about the virus that make that more difficult. Um, you know, the fact that for most young healthy people, this is a mild infection and sometimes asymptomatic makes it much harder to control than a more severe disease. So. SARS-1, it was pretty obvious who had SARS-1 most of the time, um, Ebola virus disease, the same. Those kinds of really severe pathogens that actually can be relatively easier to control because it's easy to identify who's infected and who's not. Um, and despite the enormous efforts of, you know, PCR testing entire populations, it's, you know, it's just very difficult to capture a poor symptomatic um, 
virus like this one. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I remember thinking in Feb early February 2020, I was flying back from London and I'm always trying to think at a global level. And um, I thought, gosh, globally, if the virus is already in so many countries that we know about, that means it's also in countries where we don't know about it. And it's in, you know, like a, you know, 7 billion or more people on the planet. The median age of planet Earth is 30 years old, you know, so you and I and I were over the hill um, and, the, and there's very large, there's very large young populations in low income countries. And once a virus like this is established in those populations, you can forget about containment right. and you have to have, you have to think about different responses. Um, I'm thinking about December. I mean, December was the last month and maybe even December 10th was like the last time to control it, maybe. There was, there's a visual image of Wuhan building that hospital. Maybe that was already January. It was already too late. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, okay. I, all, all I can remember is that when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about it early February, I was thinking, well, there's no, there's no chance of containing this. Um, and so, yeah, I tend to agree with you that... I, I, I only knew something was fishy when I saw them build that hospital in like one day. Uh, you know, on this, and, the, and then I knew, I was like, uh, I'm no expert, but building a hospital that quick, that, that doesn't look so good. But that's when, then I turned on the TV and everyone said the flu is worse. And I was like, hmm, I don't know about that. Anyway, go <laughs> yeah. back. Sorry, sorry, it sorry. Like I'm worried about something. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I tend to agree with you that um, in the pre-vaccine era, yeah, so maybe some significant disruptions um, to society could be justified. But I think, you know, as I've said previously, just, just like it said in pandemic plans, well, the benefits are only likely to outweigh the harms of major disruptions when they take place at the very peak of transmission, you know, so in an initial wave. Um, you know, when it becomes clear that it's a seasonal virus, then in winter you could do some, you know, focused um, stuff. You could also, um, as you say, try and put additional resources into protecting those most at risk and just acknowledge that, you know, from the very earliest data that was released by Chinese health authorities, again, in February 2020, it was obvious there was a huge age gradient. And so, you know, it was pretty clear who we needed to protect. Um, and then in terms of political philosophies, uh, yeah, look, I'm not a I'm not a political scientist, um, but you know, uh, I don't think it's necessarily you know the relationship between science and politics is obviously a fraught one, and I don't think um, I don't think progressivism per se or conservatism per se has to have a certain relationship with science. Um, you know, there's no there's no reason why progressivism should uh, be moralizing people's behavior to the degree that's happened. But I agree that's been a, that's been a disaster. And yet ethically speaking, uh, we were supposed to have learned from the HIV AIDS pandemic uh, that stigmatizing people, uh, taking away their human rights and so on, uh, was not the way to manage infectious diseases, not just because it involves punishing people unfairly, um, but because it reduces compliance, cooperation, trust, the kinds of things that we need as a society to respond to this. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of, in terms of uh, where, where things have been delinquent, I mean, I think the worst delinquency has been in, been in excessive interventions and prolonged school closures, um, most interventions aimed at children, um, these kinds of excessive uh, things and 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 interventions that have gone on too long. So like you say, once we've got great vaccines in significant supply and people have access to them, we want to encourage all the highest risk people to get vaccinated as much as possible. Uh, but once that once that's occurred, as I kind of alluded to earlier, the benefits of any intervention, you know, 
setting aside whether we know how beneficial it is, which often we haven't even known how beneficial our interventions are, but the benefits of any intervention is going down and the harms, you know, relatively speaking, are increasing. And so that's been a, a, a more recent failure has been not having clear criteria for stopping interventions, you know, not having the so-called off-ramp. Um, and uh, it's hard to see that, um, that a lot of the interventions we're doing now or doubling down this year could be justified, you know, ethically speaking, in the long term. I think we'll look back and, and regret a lot of the things we're doing now. I view it very similarly to you, which is I think that for at least the last year and uh, going forward and much of the pandemic, the errors were errors of excess restriction. Um, I guess the only things I think that they could have done a better job of are, I think for me, progressivism doesn't mean using the brute force of the state to enforce a lockdown, but it means providing economic ways that people can choose to make the right choice so that you know, for the person who is feeling sick or who tested positive and they're living at home with an 80-year-old, they should have a voucher for a free hotel for as long as it takes for them to feel better and test negative to protect that 80-year-old. We didn't do that. Uh, meanwhile, we were happy to inject. It's not that we're not happy to inject capital in the market. We injected half a trillion dollars in this country into the capital market. That's why I've, I'm richer than I've ever been. I had a lot in the stocks and I've made a killing. In fact, so much so that I'm thinking about quitting. No, but I do think that some degree, some portion of America, we've had a great um, resignation, a lot of people quitting their jobs, but some part is that people's, the people who did were fortunate to own a little bit of stock. Um, they've seen return on investment that's massive, and now they're selling it off, and they think they could live the rest of their life off that money uh, and then live in this world of Zoom. But um, So I think progressivism failed by not providing a resource for those things. But I agree with you, the more catastrophic disruption was the was it was a self-inflicted wound. You remember John Ioannidis in his very uh, now famous uh, essay in Stat, he said, uh, it is like the elephant afraid of the mouse who jumps off the, the cliff. And people, of course, you know, tarred and feathered him. But I read that recently, that piece, and I'm going to try to talk to him tomorrow. Um, but one of the one of the lines he had in it was that um, if you close all the schools, you'll prevent a lot of healthy five to 11 year olds from getting in contact with the virus and developing some herd immunity, which may actually benefit the broader population. And now we've just seen from Germany Finally, somebody has really separated kids with comorbidities from kids without comorbidities. And I've heard some people say that it is um, discriminatory to treat those two separate. I beg to differ. If you lump kids, a type 1 diabetic overweight kid with a healthy kid, you underestimate the risk to the type 1 diabetic kid. You actually trivialize the risk to them, and you overestimate the risk to the healthy kid, and you provide bad medical care for both kids. You have Medicine always has to take into account the unique characteristics of the person in front of you. That's not discriminatory. Uh, it's only discriminatory if you do so using um, his categories that historically have led to bias in an inappropriate way. That's not what we're talking about here. Being overweight, having medical problems, having diabetes, having cancer, those are known medical entities and we have to treat those patients differently um so anyway school closure mostly impacted healthy 5 to 11 year olds they didn't see the virus for so long if anything that may worsen the entire pandemic trajectory in this country it may have led to more deaths actually paradoxically um so to me that was the greatest error in addition to that the disruption to their lives the magnitude of that error is just dwarfs any risk that they ever faced um so i agree with you wholeheartedly i guess I don't know. Maybe as a progressive, it really hurts me that that the side I thought was, I don't know, I always considered progressivism to be a synonym for taking science seriously. 
But I see now it is not. I don't know if there's any politics that actually takes science seriously. Politics uses science uh, selectively and as a weapon to advance a political agenda. And sometimes political agendas change over time. You know, the Republican Party in this country wasn't what it was in the 1980s. It's a very different party. And I'm not sure the political agenda does anything other than you know, it's like its own virus. Its goal is to replicate. Its only goal is to like propagate itself. You know, it's a it's a it's a dumb virus. It has no no core principles that are sacrosanct. Both political parties will, you know, one party will turn on children, the party, the party of the left and the party on the right. They'll turn on um, lots of things, uh, in, including freedom to assemble and freedom of speech if they so feel. Um, anyway, any thoughts on this? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, hopefully one of the core kind of values of progressivism was supposed to be fairness, providing additional assistance to those who are worse off and trying to ensure kind of fair treatment across society. And we're now in a situation where there's been yeah, incredible unfairness towards children and young healthy people, where, you know, disturbingly, we have often, you know, one set of rules for kind of the poor or the service class or the global the global poor who live in certain countries and one set of rules for the, for the rich. Um, that's not, you know, that's not kind of optimizing fairness, obviously. Um, and then, uh, yeah, to, to say that certain interventions have been excessive is not to trivialize COVID-19 or, you know, the, the toll of the pandemic or the risks to high risk, high risk individuals. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, what's been incredibly unhelpful is people distorting science to fit certain narratives. Um, and in many cases, you know, exaggerating the risks to young, healthy children and, uh, you know, not pursuing the kind of data that we need. And as you say, once you take out the children with comorbidities, including obesity, there's basically zero deaths. Correct. In, in the Germany city. Yeah, zero. Yeah. It was zero deaths from five to 11. I mean, yeah. even including them, I think it was something like three per million. Excluding yeah. them, it's zero per million. I mean, okay, so this will come into the kids vaccine conversation. Um, and I pushed this with Cody Meissner, who is on the vaccine advisory committee. Yeah. We, for the sake, let's just put aside kids who are vulnerable, overweight, comorbid conditions. Absolutely makes sense to vaccinate those kids. They've suffered, I think, um, throughout this pandemic. Now let's talk about healthy kids, especially five to 11, because younger than five, there's slightly higher risk and 12 and up, there's slightly higher risk. But five to 11, I think it is the low, it's the bottom of the curve. It's the lowest risks they're going to face. Healthy five-year-old. Um, in this country, we are moving to a system where New York City has announced if they don't get that vaccine, they're not allowed to go to a restaurant. The kid, they're not allowed to go to a restaurant. I find it so, I mean, and they call, and they believe, they believe in their heart that this is a pro-science position. I don't know where to start. One, the risk to the kid is as low as it gets. I honestly wonder if they have to drive, how many miles do they have to drive to get the vaccine where the risk, it's a break even, what's the break even point? How many miles? I don't think it's going to be as many as you think. Um, to to exclude them from restaurants, uh, what have we? What are we doing? Yeah. So, and and just to raise one more thing, some people say, "Oh, what about long COVID in children?" Yeah, studies have now shown that that's not really a real phenomenon. That once you uh, separate out the children who have and haven't had COVID and you monitor them for symptoms, there's no real difference between them. So there doesn't appear to be a kind of major phenomenon of long COVID in children. I want to ask you one question about the long COVID. Can I do it now? Or you want to come back? Uh, sorry. Okay. Here's my long COVID question. Prior to this pandemic, did we ever talk about long respiratory virus in any respiratory virus context? Is that is that am I incorrect in thinking? I never heard that before. Well, I mean, I think, um, and it, let's just let's just bookmark that we need to okay. talk about 
excluding kids from society because okay, that's, that's I, yeah. Terrible. But no, but, but first, we'll just talk about long, long respiratory viruses. So, I think a problem here is that people are using a term to refer to kind of multiple different things. I think long COVID refers to at least three different um, sets of clinical phenomena. Okay, one is you have people with severe disease. They come out of intensive care. They have you know incredible Prolongs, fatigue. Yep. That's right, fatigue, respiratory problems, brain fog, often lung scarring and so on. Terrible. And this has always been there. This has always been there for, you know, we've always recognized this post-ICU entity. That's yeah. right. And I see, you know, I see that every year with all kinds of viruses or even bacterial pneumonia and so on. Uh, then you have a group of people um, who have a more mild or moderate illness. Uh, they have some lung infection and they're not after intensive care, but they still have, for example, chronic cough, breathlessness, uh, often sometimes fatigue and so on. Um, again, that's a well-recognized phenomenon with a range of kind of respiratory infections. Uh, and then you have a third group of people who have had a mild or asymptomatic illness and then have um, symptoms out of proportion to the amount of um, tissue damage that's occurred. You know, there's a, um, there's a very uh, tight relationship in physiology and medicine between the amount of tissue damage and the amount of tissue dysfunction, generally speaking. Um, where there's not such a tight relationship is between the amount of tissue damage and dysfunction and the amount of symptoms that people have, at least in some situations, you know, um, ideal, I look after um, uh, patients with uh, chronic pain, for example, and I was thinking, sometimes, back pain, yeah. yeah, sometimes we look, the people who've had the worst injuries don't always have the worst pain. Sometimes people have had mild injuries, they have terrible pain. And you can take their symptoms seriously. You can look after them with great care and compassion uh, without there necessarily having to be some kind of disastrous pathology because you can make sure that's kind of not, not present by doing tests. Um, and so when we use long COVID to refer to those three groups without being clear about which group we're talking about, well, those are very different you know, sets of phenomena um, and none of them are new. None of them, I, I, I'm yet to see a single study that's adequately controlled that compares, say, people who've had influenza with a similar characteristic, similar severity versus COVID-19 and see what happens afterwards. And I think if we did adequately controlled studies, the differences might not be, I mean, I don't know, but it might not be as big as people assume. Um, and we certainly see post-viral fatigue syndromes after, you know, after influenza, uh, after Epstein-Barr virus, after arboviruses. Um, we see these kind of syndromes and they, they all, behave quite similarly, actually. You know, people have, have these symptoms of fatigue, brain fog, and all kinds of things. And they generally last months up to about a year, and most people get better with supportive care, and that's good news. Um, but, you know, I think people have used yeah, long COVID as kind of a weapon to say that even healthy people, you know, need to, to follow all these rules and so on. I think that's but what, I, that's the key use of the weapon. It was that the greatest way to combat the, the GBD authors if somebody were to say that now we know for sure there's no deaths 5 to 11, why didn't we put them in school? They could have spread in that group safely. They say, well, some of them would have ended up with long COVID, to which I would say, so they're using it as that weapon. It's to torpedo that policy effort. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess, the, I mean, on your point, one, I guess one thing that I think you're going to say is that even if you vaccinate them, some of them are going to have the PCR carriage. So why won't they get long COVID after the vaccine anyway, too? You know, if it, if it can come with a, a, asymptomatic disease, it can come anytime, you know, whether or not you've been vaccinated or not. But I think the other point is, is that, I don't know, well, you're, I mean, obviously the studies do show that it's much less common than we think. And, you know, and, and it's hard to know how it differs from other things. Yeah. Well, that's right. And there was, that, and there was that great French study just recently where they had, they had the groups of people who thought they had had COVID. And they were either seropositive or seronegative and the people who yeah. thought they hadn't had COVID and they were seropositive or seronegative. And the only thing that was correlated with 
having a immune response suggestive of previous COVID infection was loss of your sense of smell and osmia mm. um, and all the other symptoms that people are experiencing. Well, they can be terrible symptoms. They can be debilitating and so on, but they weren't, you know, strongly linked to, you know, evidence of prior, of prior infection. And, and these are the kinds of studies that we need to try and tease out, you know, what's causing what. Um, so but in any case, yeah, we were going to come back to excluding kids from, so you know, from restaurants. Yeah, that's right. So I mean, the, the thing is that all three of those kind of phenomena are, are major issues for adults. But in children, there's been, yeah, it's a very little long COVID, apart from maybe the kids who come out of intensive care. And often the, the kids who started off um, with medical illnesses and so on, they're going to take a while to recover. Um, but yeah, then so we come to excluding children from society. And, and I think we need to be clear here that this is a highly coercive public health policy. You know, the definition of coercion is either that I threaten you if you don't do the thing that you're required to do, or I, you know, one, one of the ways I can threaten you is not just to harm you, but to take away access to a key social good. Uh, so social goods like um, education, um, uh, healthcare, uh, f- but free interaction with others. That's, that's also an important social good. Um, you know, setting aside, you know, whether people have a right to go to a restaurant or whatever, that people have a right to have, you know, free interaction, free association with others. And taking that away from people, taking that away from children, um, it's hard to see how that could possibly be uh, justified uh, for this um, virus. And just in general, um, you know, I even even for people who are in favour of, of kind of vaccine mandates and segregation, um, you know, maybe while we're trying to get the vaccination levels up to a certain level, you might think some people might think they're justified. How could it possibly be justified, especially in a place like New York, where there's, 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 there's people who are vaccinated. Then there's even the, among the unvaccinated people, most of those have been infected previously. I mean, New York had one of the most unmitigated epidemics. Um, you know, at least 40 or 50 percent of Americans, probably more, have been infected. So there's, there's a tiny um, proportion of people who don't have immunity. And, um, and in addition to that, why would, you know, why, again, why would we want to segregate people? Because ultimately, um, even with, you know, boosters and so on, it doesn't look to me like we're going to be able to prevent post-vaccination infections. And so what you might actually want in the long term, all things considered, uh, is that you might want people to get infected sooner rather than later. You know, as I, as I think I said previously, no one's getting any younger. Uh, people's immunity from their vaccine or their previous infection is waning. So we want there to be some continuous exposure. And so segregating people might not even produce a benefit. It might produce a net harm in addition to the harms that are caused by locking people out of society. I find it astonishing. Um, There are people who always, um, I think, use sensationalist language to describe some of these restrictions. New York's pushing me so far that that they're making it true. They're making it true, all those things that they're saying about the brute force of the state. 90% of eligible people are vaccinated in New York City. They've had the epidemic. There is no threat on hospitals. They've done two things. One, they've mandated it for private employment. They speculate that 10,000 people, something like that, if they don't capitulate, they're going to lose their jobs, which is an unnecessary blow against their lives and livelihood. And then this thing on kids, which I think is it's too much. They're out of control. And this is done by the, this is the leftmost city. There's no, you can't blame it on the Republicans. Okay, it's 100% Democratic controlled. It's left of center. And they believe that what they're doing is the virtue. They like believe that they're doing the Lord's work. And I just think they're not. And I know they're not. And I don't think that they understand what they're doing. Um, they're being cruel in a way that uh, is antithetical to their philosophy of what it should be. 
That's right. And, and look, being cruel to children, <laughs> that's a way to, you know, first of all, generate a scandal and, and um, second of all, to undermine any political support you're going to have in the long term because people are, feel very um, threatened when you harm uh, their children. Um, and yeah, just, just some things about, about language, because I think this is interesting. And there's, you know, there's some, there's some kind of terms that, that we should probably stop using, I think. You know, one, one is this language that's being weaponized in this, in this context, which is the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Um, and that's not true. And, but, but it's often like you know, very compelling untruths. It's often based on kind of something that is true, which is that you know, for a while, it looked like the majority of people in hospital with COVID were unvaccinated people um, because the vaccines are pretty good at reducing individual risk of severe disease. But that doesn't make it a pandemic of the unvaccinated. In fact, as more and more people are vaccinated, the fraction of infections are going to be, it's going to be more among the vaccinated. And eventually they're going to be most of the hospitalized people in places with very high vaccination rates. And if you use that same logic, that, it, that, it, that it's hospitalization that determines who it's a pandemic of, well, then it's always been a pandemic of the old, frail and sick. Um, and, you know, that's something that people have not wanted to, to talk about. Um, but that's why we shouldn't be talking about just the hospitalized people. We should be talking about the whole population. Um, you know, some other things I think we should give up on is uh, I think fully vaccinated was a terrible is a terrible term. Um, and we just don't have evidence about, um, you know, what the best vaccination strategy is. Um, you know, boosters undermine the idea of being fully vaccinated. And also it's, it's the first dose that gives you the most benefit. And the, the idea that the idea that we forced people to get a second dose um, otherwise, we were going to take away their freedoms um, because that's fully vaccinated. And I think that's people are people are finding it hard to believe and trust uh, after they've been through that, that then suddenly there's kind of additional doses. Look, and the last last bit of language, maybe you're going to disagree with me here, but um, I think we should give up on the language of natural immunity. Um, you know, I try and say post-infection immunity because um, and post-vaccination immunity, because ultimately all immunity is natural. Right. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. immune, the immune system just responds to whatever it gets exposed to. Um, and there's the vaccine exposing it to something. And, you know, that's obviously made by human engineering and so on. There's the virus. So we, as far as we know, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a natural phenomenon and so on. Um, and mm. but the immune, immune system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The immune, the immune system si reacts in a natural way. Yeah. Yeah. In, in any case, the immune system is, is natural. And, you know, I get, I get the importance of distinguishing between post-infection immunity and uh, post-vaccination immunity. Um, but I think they're one, in some ways, you know, one's just as natural uh, as the other. And we should be trying to normalize the fact, their similarity. We should be trying, trying to normalize the fact that they're you know, much more similar than most people think. And, you know, who knows? Post-infection immunity might turn out to be more durable, more, yeah. At least yeah. the Israeli data suggests it might be more protective. For most adults, for most uh, most adults, I would uh, strongly argue that the better way to develop the immunity is from the vaccine than from the virus. But if you were to have already developed it, probably the better immunity is from the virus than the vaccine. Um, if you were to already develop it, that's a, that's a post hoc claim, but the better way to get it is to get the vaccine. Um, and uh, um, uh, But uh, I think that the problems are the policy, when the policy uses the same um, mandates for the people who've already recovered from the virus, I think it's silly. Um, this person was talking about a six-year-old boy who had COVID recovered, PCR proven, now has to get two doses to go to a restaurant. Um, let's, take the, let's take a stronger example. I think a 16-year-old boy, college he's about to be a college athlete. He's a star player. He's had the virus recovered. And let's say his parents went ahead and got dose one, and he did fine. 
now he's basically facing a situation that if he doesn't get dose two, they're going to throw him out of Los Angeles schools um, by the end of this year. They're going to throw this kid out of school for the for, for this for arguably arguably a health decision that may even be a decrement to his health. Arguably, I mean, I think the uncertainty bounds of that are, are quite broad. Um, maybe even a decrement to this individual's health. In I don't know what we're doing. I want to ask you two other things before we. Uh, okay. Um, the Bangladesh cluster RCT has been, uh, data has been made available and people discovered one very interesting thing. I'm curious to pick your brain on. I don't know if you've been following. Um, of course, this is a randomized trial of villages. A priori, the villages have, are paired based on um, that they think they're going to be comparable. So every time you randomize, you randomize one of a pair. So the pairs are already preset. When you randomize, there is a single time point where people are consented to the intervention. In the intervention arm of the study, uh, are in the control arm of the study, they drive up to the village, I assume in a Toyota Corolla, because I love a Corolla. No, they drive up in a small car and they go around consenting people and they consent like 100,000 people. In the intervention arm of the village, they drive up, but they can't take the Corolla because it can't fit all the boxes of the masks they're bringing. So they got to take a big SUV with boxes out the tops, you know, they're looking, uh, coming in with a big truck full of the masks. And in this arm of the study, there is a huge imbalance. I mean, it's a 15,000 person imbalance in how many people consent to the study. They're consenting way more people to the study, right? Why would that happen? Because it's not, it's not blinded at this space. So both the investigators know they're going to give him a treat, and the people may even get the sense that they're going to get something from consent. Um, uh, so, so there's an excess, and that excess is actually the most statistically significant thing about the whole study. <laughs> okay. Then they go forward. Um, you know, if you have symptoms, you report into a hotline. Um, they tell you to get a blood draw. Some people get a blood draw. There's like losing people at every stage of this. And then what percent of the tests are positive? It's like 23.04% test positivity in the control arm. And it's like 23.13% test positivity in the control arm. It's exactly the same, like percent of people who test positive. But if you divide the test, the zero prevalence by the denominator of all the people in the village, that's when you get the 0 0.76, 0 0.69, statistically significant P, 0 0.049, no, 04, you know, barely significant result when you divide it by the denominator. So here's my premise. It is possible that because it's unblinded, there's going to be some 15,000 people who are on the cusp of consenting. They wouldn't have consented if you wouldn't give them a free mask, but they will consent for a freebie. And to be honest, I'm the same way. You know, you're going to give me something free. I'll, I'll take a mask. You know, I, I, I keep criticizing cloth masks, but just the other day I got one for free. I was like, oh, it looks so nice. <laughs> okay, anyway, so I would have consented. But then that person who consented only in one arm, but not the other arm, they're probably not equally likely to report symptoms if they were to have it. They're not equally likely to commit to blood draw, et cetera. So I think this is kind of a, a damning imbalance. I'm curious if you follow this and what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, yeah, you, obviously you, you're an expert, you and, I, you know, and I know that, you know, research is complicated, randomized controlled trials are, you know, difficult to do well. And there are all kinds of points along the way where you can introduce various kinds of bias. And I mean, just to take, just to flag one thing first, which is that, um, you know, just like we're relying on South Africa to sequence new variants for us, we're relying on Bangladesh to do mass trials. I, I mean, I think these, these uh, countries and researchers should be praised for kind of their efforts in global health. But I think it's disappointing to note that some of the richest countries in the world maybe aren't kind of um, doing as much as they should be to try and test some of these interventions. Um, and yeah, I think it's plausible that when you treat control and intervention arms differently, they change their behavior. We know that from all kinds of studies. But it, I mean, it was obvious 
from the very first press release about this Bangladesh study that they were desperate to have anything that would suggest that masks would work. I mean, normally, if you report something with a p-value of 0.05, which, you know, as you and your listeners probably know, you know, is suggestive that it could well have been due to chance and there's a very, you know, and the absolute risk difference is so small um, and only in the surgical mask arm. Well, you know, we we could take that on board, but it's the kind of thing you would want to replicate and, and, in, and in relevant kinds of settings and so on. Um, and, you know, the focus should be on, well, yeah, what is the absolute risk difference? And it's not very large. And there's been an enormous amount of distraction for interventions that are either, you know, non-beneficial or having very, producing very small benefits and focusing too much on those types of interventions is distracting us from other things that we could be doing. And, and frankly, also distracting us from, from the fact that it wouldn't be so bad to wind down some of these interventions if they weren't making a huge difference to begin with. Um, but yeah, I think that yeah, the findings of those of that study they're kind of borderline at best, and but people's reading of it is largely determined by what they thought about masks before they read it. I think <laughs> I noticed that like when the PI of the studies only photographed with a mask on on Twitter, then you're like, okay, I don't know, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's gonna work. I'm pretty okay, but um, but you know, since we last spoke, we published our thing, our twenty five thousand word article on like all the data on masking, and it's obviously I don't need to tell you because you came, you know, all this data, but like pre pandemic, how the data was mostly null, and that's why they said what they said, and then how the one eighty is what's unprecedented, and I think if you took all the pre test probability, all those prior studies, you added in Bangladesh, you add in this bias, you add the marginal p value, you add all the potential human biases in this. I think the totality of the evidence is rather null, probably for all of it. Certainly for cloth, cloth is useless. Um, if you, I, I don't even know why we're even, anyone's even wearing the cloth anymore, um, other than it's it's a nice, it, it tells me who you voted for, so that's nice. <laughs> Again, no instantly. Um, but okay, we'll put that aside. Um, Syracuse University in the United States, they have just mandated college students get boosters or they're going to get not allowed to come on campus. Thoughts on boosting healthy 18 to 22 year olds or no school. Yeah. I, I mean, this is, this is one of those examples where the, the benefits of our intervention are, are vanishing very fast. And uh, yeah, when, when the, you know, when Pfizer, when the manufacturer of the vaccine comes out with a study that says you get a 2% risk reduction for symptomatic illness. And so hospitalization is going to be a tiny, tiny fraction of that. And when the post-vaccination risk of hospitalization from COVID-19 is already very low, even in older adults, um, you know, I would, I would say that right now we just don't even have the information we need to know uh, what the benefit of boosters is going to be in different populations. But my intuition is that, yeah, they might be justified in uh, very older, much older people they might be justified in you know very sick or immunosuppressed people you know under certain circumstances but even then i want to i want to see data being collected to show me that the benefits outweigh the harms where it's almost impossible to believe that they would be justified is in young healthy adults um you know not working in healthcare and even even those working in healthcare i don't think we have good evidence um that the benefits outweigh the harms uh and you know the harms the harms are non-trivial um and and again Ethically speaking, you know, before we mandate something, before we force people to do it, we should have a really good idea about um, what the kind of likely outcomes of our intervention are. Um, and so, yeah, I really hope that more places are not going to be linking people's freedoms to boosters, especially since, um, you know, there's no reason to think that the boosters are going to provide long-term protection. And like you say, 
while some people might have an interest in there being kind of annual vaccinations, the marginal benefits going down and down and down all the time. And this claim, also this claim that uh, by vaccinating young, healthy people, we can protect others. Well, I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that. And if there, and if there is a, a, a degree to which others are protected, it might be a very small degree. Um, and it's hard to believe that we could, we could mandate or require that for absolutely everyone, that it would be justified. Yeah. I agree with all that. So <laughs> you said it better than I said it. That's, I mean, you, I, I guess I'm shocked. I feel like when I talk to you, I feel like I'm not lost my mind because I pretty much have, that's pretty much how I think about all these things. There's a paper that um, has been pre-printed. It's not been widely advertised yet, but it, the authors do some calculations about the number needed to exclude. And they basically say, assuming what we know about the risk to vaccinated people and assuming what we know about the risks of unvaccinated people, how many people do you have to exclude from an indoor event um, to prevent one vaccinated person from getting sick? And I think it's kind of a beautiful idea because the moral uh, authority of vaccine mandate, to some degree, yes, it's being done to protect the person who you're coercing. Yes. But I think to a large degree, the reason it's being done politically is to protect the person me, because I did the quote unquote right thing. And I don't want you who did the wrong thing to get me sick. And this paper uses a lot of conservative modeling, suggesting that it's trying to pick the lowest possible number. Like it's it's giving all the benefit of the doubt in every of the parameters. But of course, since I'm vaccinated, the risk to me is low. And if you're unvaccinated, you know, you're going to be, um, what's it called, diluted with all the vaccinated people. And the net result is something like, it's something like a th it's in the thousand. It's like over a thousand people. Thousand people need to be excluded from an indoor event to avert one transmission of SARS-CoV-2, not one hospitalization, just one transmission of the virus. And it's I think I just saw it out on preprint. Um, very provocative paper, but probably, of course, you, you're not you don't even doubt the conclusion. The conclusion is probably true. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I haven't seen that paper yet, but it's great to see people actually thinking about trying to put some numbers on these kinds of intuitions, mm -hmm. uh, you know, even if they're not going to be perfect and we, we don't understand um you know, transmission in these uh, in these kinds of populations yet, and so on. But you, yeah, you just have to think about how could we, as a society, um, agree to bear that cost to exclude yeah thousands of people from society to prevent what's ultimately going to be a mild uh, post-vaccination infection in in the vast majority of cases. Um, and, and I really wish we could change the way we talk about this kind of thing rather than, you know, rather than uh, what's the White House's thing? Protect the vaccinated, right? I, mean, I, I, think, I think we need to say um, we're confident uh, that uh, people who have been vaccinated or previously infected um, and, and probably also some young, healthy people who haven't had either of those things, that these people are at low risk. Um, and we should, we should be encouraging society to mix freely again for all the reasons that we talked about earlier, that there might even be kind of infectious disease benefits, but there sure are social and political benefits of, uh, of free association in society. And that we've turned what should have been a triumph, you know, having having vaccines that at the individual level are yes. highly effective. Amazingly risk-reducing, yeah. Yeah, we've and, and offering them to everyone who wants them. And then, you know, we can probably leave a few people who don't want them, but we've, we've turned something that could have been a triumph um, into a potential you know, disaster, both from a public health uh, and a, um, a political perspective. And it's hard to predict how that's going to go. Uh, but I agree, sometimes sometimes when you think about this kind of thing, you think, you know, am I crazy or is what's going on uh, crazy? And, but 
when people try and put some numbers on that, it's starting to look pretty crazy. It's looked pretty crazy. It looks pretty crazy. Um, let me pause for one second. I'm getting a page. You still have a few more minutes? Yeah. Okay. I want to ask you about testing. Testing. Um, there's a chorus of voices that say, like, no matter what we do with vaccination, we're still going to need to keep testing and more testing and all this testing. They're easy to recognize because they're consulting for the testing companies. <laughs> sometimes they are. Sometimes they develop the test and sometimes they're consulting for the companies. Okay, but that's how I know them. But okay, but, you know, maybe they genuinely believe this. But here's what I was thinking about testing. I don't know. And I was saying this before, but I think I underestimated it. I mean, there's 7 billion people. When you think about on a daily basis, how many people to people interactions, maybe we're talking about 50 billion people to people interactions or 100 billion interactions, because if I go to work, I touch seven people or something like that. So we're talking yes. 100, yeah, possible, 100, 100, billion, 100 billion interactions a day. And of that universe of human interactions, what percent of human interactions require SARS-CoV-2 testing right now? And I was thinking about it, and it's probably like one one thousandth or probably one one millionth of one percent like it's the lowest of low like almost none of these the, the international travel to switzerland yes but all these other interactions no i was thinking that it takes four things for testing to be useful one the test has to be accurate low false positive low false negative the problem with some of these antigen tests is the false negative so if you feel symptomatic you test negative you might go do something foolish um, because you think you're negative when in fact you should have trusted your intuition about your symptom two um, that that uh, the test has to be uh, fast uh, so you need to know the result like now not like four days from now i actually bet these testing companies know how many people like to get your answer after you give your test you have to phone a number a couple days later and i bet they know that like 40 percent of people i don't know 20 percent of people they never even get their test result back like they don't even log in to the app um i bet that's a prop but they don't care they made their money um but and they don't want to tell you that number because it will really undermine their testing that the next thing is the change in behavior so if i test and i find out i'm positive i have to be able to afford to change my behavior and sit in my house and not and i don't know have my own room or my own living quarters like if people are in a multi-generation household i don't know what they're supposed to do um, and then the testing has to be consistent so of that 10 100 billion interactions some meaningful fraction not like you know only the airport so when i see people say that like we need to keep testing i guess i'm not sure one i'm not sure what their goal is like what do they think will like the virus eventually gonna they're gonna encounter the virus very soon two i think that even even if their goal, whatever their goal is, this is like spitting in the ocean. It's got to be like a drop in the ocean of act. I mean, it's not going to make a difference. So I wonder how you think about like maybe the places to test are the staff in nursing homes for unboosted nursing home patients. Maybe they should get tested. Um, or if you go on bone marrow transplant service, you should get tested. But that's about it. Yeah. So I mean, I, I, I would to your four criteria, which are great. I would add one more. Which yes. Is needs to prevent harm you know there's no there's no need to know about any of this stuff unless it's going to prevent harm and so your last examples of yeah maybe if you're on bone marrow transplant service you're dealing with very vulnerable immunosuppressed people and that's a situation where we really want to know uh if you're infectious or not and you know maybe we weren't doing that enough for other viruses for that matter you know because uh where we're letting people work as you as you said earlier all the time uh or we previously were when they were when they're infected but, um, you know, I would dispute the idea that we even need testing for travel uh, because yes, I agree it's pointless because ultimately, you know, a quarantine system for this kind of virus or a new variant is only as good as 
not letting in just one or two or three infectious right. cases. But once you let it in, then the new thing gets established. And if it's, you know, uh, if it's actually a threat, well, it's going to get in anyway. And so testing people before they travel, it doesn't exclude the possibility that they were infected just before the test, that they're in the incubation period and they're going to become infectious when they arrive at the location. And so there's, there's not even any point before travel. Um, and I think actually the, the goal of testing in highly immune populations needs to go back to what the goal of most influenza testing was, which is uh, we predominantly tested hospitalized patients and we tested that for a couple of reasons. We tested that for the diagnosis to make sure that we knew what we were dealing with and we're doing the appropriate treatment. We tested it to, so we could separate them out from other people so they didn't infect other patients and staff as much as possible. And the third reason we tested it is to get a sense of what the epidemiology in the population was. Now, it's not perfect, but there was, you know, a, a formula that they would use uh, to say, here's the tip of the iceberg, hospitalized patients with this disorder. Um, here's what we know about the symptomatic and asymptomatic fraction. Uh, and then we can estimate what the prevalence is. And then we can you know, alert people that influenza season is starting and so on. Um, I think that's an appropriate testing strategy for, uh, for SARS-CoV-2 in the post-vaccination, highly immune population era. Um, but gosh, we're a long way from that. Right. We're going to turn down a lot of settings before we get down to that. But ultimately, I think that's the only place where testing is going to be appropriate, apart from maybe some very high risk interactions like the ones that you mentioned. When you if you present to the hospital feeling ill, test. If you're working in bone marrow transplant or very sick people, test. Um, and besides these few things, I think. It's pointless. I think the travel, it's just a disruption to lives. But I think it will persist because actually travel is the best place to do it. Why? People who travel have money and they can pay the test, you know? It's just like, um, you know, all these things in life. Um, they're never going to deploy wide-scale testing on poor populations. They never were. They're never going to. It's not going to test Mumbai slum. They're going to do it at like travelers in Heathrow. You know, that's where they're going to go after. And, and maybe they'll make it more costly or onerous or find some way to bilk them more or have testing insurance. The moment they have testing insurance, and I guarantee you, we're all getting tested all the time. Uh, if, the, if the more it's covered by insurance and we can subsidize those costs. But I want to ask you about the um, flu vaccination. Pre-COVID, long before COVID, I once upon a time... I read something, flu vaccine, only 40% effective. And I made the mistake of trying to figure out where they got that number. And you know, it's not a randomized control trial. That's the first thing I learned. They don't do randomized control trials for the annual flu vaccine. They do like a very limited um, case control study, really. They look at like, I don't know if you must follow this literature closer than me, but when I, it's been many years since I looked, I should have looked before this interview, but it was something like they look at people presenting with like respiratory virus complaints and who subsequently test positive for influenza. And then they go backwards and say, what was the probability they were exposed to flu vaccine versus not if they tested for a different respiratory virus. But it really suffers from a lot of confounding because it's not a direct measure of the vaccine efficacy, but rather predicated on seeking care for influenza, which is fundamentally different in people who are vaccine averse versus people who are vaccine proponents who are probably much more likely to interact with healthcare systems. So I always found it to be sort of a, a flawed metric. And if I were to bet, the direction of the bias would be in, in favor of efficacy, like it's actually less effective than the even 40% quoted figure. Anyway, I tell this because there is a precedent, I think, for an annual vaccination with low efficacy and sort of very weak levels of evidence 
There was never calls, I thought. I don't think I remember everyone any, ever hearing anyone ask for a randomized controlled trials. I've been in this business long enough to remember that once upon a time, it wasn't so obligatory for healthcare workers to have gotten it. And that change happened over the last 20 years in healthcare. And it became sort of obviously like, like so many COVID things, it became moral dimension to it. You're a bad person. And they sort of framed it that way. Not really a scientific question. Um, but, you know, 20 years ago, that it wasn't so popular. And I don't think people did it that much. They really pushed on this campaign hard. And I guess the reason I say all this is that it's very plausible to me that the booster trial that Pfizer did, which is, I think, not conclusive and has no and underpowered and limited, might be the last booster trial you get. Israel has already authorized like the fourth dose. And I suspect the companies may want to go to a model where case control study, you know, this same type of why do why do they they, they they regret that they even let you know about randomized trials? They should have kept that a secret. And we should boost based on this kind of quasi-experimental stuff. What do you think? Is the future of boosting that 30 years from now, I'll be getting my 22nd booster based on this kind of data? Yeah, so there's lots of really interesting points there. I mean, one thing about, one thing about the um, influenza vaccines uh, is that, you know, like, like we talked about, there's lots of immunity to multiple strains of influenza in the community. Um, and, you know, one, one reason why older people don't seem to respond well to influenza vaccines is so-called immunosenescence, their immune response isn't so good. Um, but another reason might be that they've they've already had they've already been exposed to those um, those strains of influenza, and so their additional benefit as someone who's oh, recovered sure. is very small. Sure. Um, but there's kind of lots of there's lots of factors that play. A lot of analogies to boosters there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's some interesting things going on. Um, yeah. But then there's so then there's the thing about uh, yeah, enforcing it for healthcare workers. Yes. That's kind of the closest. It's often not mandatory like we've seen for COVID, but it's sort of pretty close to mandatory in a lot of healthcare settings to have the influenza vaccine every year. And then most people comply with that, although there's usually kind of a you know, small number of uh, opt-outs. Um, but often people's intuitions there aren't very uh, accurate or scientific in a lot of cases. So one intuition that people have is that um, we don't want doctors or healthcare workers infecting their patients. And yeah, I agree with that. Morally speaking, it's worse if you infect a vulnerable person, especially one who's under your care for various kinds right. of reasons. But um, if you actually look at the, um, the data the yeah. data we've had from COVID, most of the spread of respiratory viruses appears to be staff to staff in hospital and mm. patient to patient. And actually mm. staff to patient is not a very big fraction of spread for all the reasons you might think. You know, you're wearing PPE, uh, you spend a small amount of time per patient, whereas patients and staff spend more time together and so on. And the third thing is that um, we need to be focusing on the number needed to treat. Uh, so, you know, um, there's a great analysis uh, of this uh, with, I think, uh, Skronovsky as the first author, looking at, well, how many people would you have to mandate? How many healthcare workers would you have to force to get vaccinated to prevent one death from influenza among patients? Yeah, and it's okay. in the thousands. It's in the oh, thousands. Yes. So many, many people have this, um, this idea that, you know, one person getting one vaccine will save one other per one other person's mm -hmm. life from preventing transmission, but that's not necessarily the case. So a number needed to treat can be very high. Uh, and then, yeah, lastly, obviously there's a huge profit motive for things like boosters. Um, and I think there's a real worry that that um, evidence-based medicine and regulators have been even more hijacked than before. Right. Um, and yeah, when you look at that that study out of Israel about boosters. They, they 
they followed people for about uh, sort of six to 10 or 12 weeks. I mean, they had the booster campaign in July. They censored the trial in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they drew these, then they drew these Kaplan Meyer curves that were separating and they, and they censored those at two months. And then they made some predictions about kind of how much benefit there would be down the line, but some things are going to change in the future. One, the effectiveness of, of the booster is going to wane because the immunity is going to decline over time. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, two people are going to, you know, keep, keep being exposed. And so, it was really a, a very tiny number of events that they that they witnessed, and the idea that we would authorize the use of a expensive and hardly beneficial intervention, and then not only authorize it but mandate it, I think that's you know that's very that's very concerning, and that's normally we would demand more. We would demand longer term follow up, <laughs> you know, we would demand kind of a better estimate of benefits and harms. We would demand a larger sample size. We would demand an unbiased trial, not right. run by not run Third by the party. Company. Right. Yeah. Um, and we're not getting any of those things. Um, and if the, if the long-term effect of this is um, yeah, undermining kind of standards in evidence-based medicine standards in regulatory activities, well then you know we could run into other problems down the line. They make only one mistake with their booster campaign, which is they should have used a very, very low dose. I'll tell you why. The barrier is the AE profile is not pleasant, and so people won't tolerate it. But the AE profile for flu vaccine is much more tolerable. So if they actually used even a homeopathic dose, they could marshal, I think, basically no data at all, and they just have it in perpetuity. No one would complain about it because they don't feel too sick. Um, you know, if they just use three nan- three micrograms or ten rather than thirty, and for fi- and Moderna, they just need to cut all their doses by half, and then they'd have you know the the most the most lucrative drug in in oncology for a long time was Avastin, not because it was good, but because it had very little toxicity and paired well with other drugs. So you know, it's sort of the business plan of Pfizer. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is in order to have productive dialogue and thinking about vaccination, I think you have to enter the space thinking about it like any other medical product, which is that when used correctly, it can be of tremendous good. And when used inappropriately, for instance, the six-year-old who already had SARS-CoV-2, pressuring or coercing them into getting doses, or even not even asking the honest questions about like, does one dose benefit them or two doses, or does it work, you know, does this benefit this kid? When you um, prevent those dialogues, I think you do a great disservice. Um, and vaccination can be wonderful. Maybe the 85-year-old needs three, but maybe the six-year-old who had COVID, you know, I don't know how many they need. Or maybe a healthy six-year-old, I think it's an open question. So um, over the last 20 years, we've been dealing with the anti-vax people, and I think they came in and they poisoned this well in a lot of ways because they said a lot of things that were probably not true, uh, definitely not true, like that Wakefield paper that was awful and really shouldn't have been published. And, you know, when I think when they tried to investigate it, The Lancet said that the peer review burnt up in the file. Did you hear this? This is a true story. That apparently, they tried to get the peer review, but it burnt in a file cabinet. And I was like, uh, so, so fishy. <laughs> I'm sure that one peer review burnt, or you're embarrassed to show how terrible it was. But they should never have published that paper because it's scientifically, it's not, it's not, it wasn't that good. It had no control. Um, but that sowed the seeds. But I do think that that movement is bigger than the vaccine itself. I think it's a movement about what happens when you have wealth stag- wealth inequality, wealth stagnation, and people feel like their lives aren't in their control. And vaccination, especially for your children, I think is one of the few ways that you feel like you have control over your own fate and your future and your destiny. And when governments take that away from you, when they make you vaccinate your kid to go to a restaurant, I think, of course, there's that medical decision, but there's also this 
this decision of they're using their power to to basically affect how you take care of your own children, which is a very sort of sacred place in human beings for you know thousands of years. That's going to really rub people the wrong way. Okay, what I'm trying to get at is my question is. Um, in response to these anti-vax people, I think there are a lot of well-intentioned people who are doctors or scientists of some sort who have become sort of, I don't know, I don't know what they position themselves at, but stewards of like anti-pseudoscience, anti-anti-vax. And, you know, just like progressivism in times of peace, it's a beautiful philosophy and it actually helps a lot. Like maybe they are debunking and helping people be persuaded to get MMR. But in a time of like a live issue, like vaccinating kids with a novel mRNA corona vaccine that no one has ever seen. They enter with all their old heuristics like all vaccine good, more vaccine better. And that's not useful. And they're not helpful, actually. They they call people like, I don't know, I mean, like you or I might even be labeled anti-vax in their, in their ideology. Um, and I don't think they're doing so because they actually deeply understand the issue. I think they're doing so because they deeply don't understand the issue and they're relying on sort of tired heuristics. But I do think they are influential in the sense that the New York Times has bought into them. That's why Trevor Noah can't make that joke. A comedian cannot make that joke because the anti-anti-vax have been so influential. But I do think what they don't realize is they are they have probably already done it. They have destroyed themselves. They are going to they're making it harder to vaccinate in the future. They're making it harder to have the trust. So I wonder how you think about how this issue has it become, you know, two groups of crazy people. Are we in the middle of two crazy groups? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how what it's become or where it's going. But what I am sure about is that the way to deal with people who have doubts about vaccines or other types of interventions is transparency and honesty. You know, both as an individual doctor, just sitting down with people, listening to their concerns, and you know, uh, just responding to that with the best possible reading of the evidence, including relevant uncertainties, um, and trying to kind of oversimplify or just like tell people that they're wrong or not listening to people, not being transparent about what we know, um, you know, companies not releasing their data and so on. That's not increasing trust in vaccines. Um, and neither is silencing any dissent um, or, or denying that there are harms. Um, you know, the mRNA vaccines, there are in many ways great vaccines, but there are significant harms, especially in young males. Um, and we need to acknowledge those harms so that we can have, as you say, a rational kind of risk-benefit discussion and, you know, those harms are getting written up in medical journals now. And like you say, in the future, you know, I don't like the label of anti-vaccination or whatever, but the, right. you know, the future people who want to um, kind of uh, point to this episode and say, you see what they did last time, you know, how yes. could you trust yes. it again? Right. They're going to point to this, they're going to point to where these harms were denied. And your public health, uh, global public health, it's a long-term game. And you really need populations to trust what you say. Um, and I think I mentioned this before, but in, yeah, in the Philippines, there was a, a problem with a dengue vaccine that led to increased right. harms on children and then confidence in vaccines in general collapsed. And we've got to keep in mind again, like, yeah, I'm a global kind of person. The global median age is 30. What we really need uh, is vaccines against tuberculosis, uh, against measles and so on to go to the kind of um, right. poorest communities in the world. And if we if trust in vaccines uh, falls globally, not to mention the supply chain issues, disruptions, and so on, you're potentially facing immense harms in the long term. And yet, like you say, in a well-intentioned way to try and defend vaccines from their critics, uh, you might actually make things worse in the long term. And yeah, I'm, I'm worried about that too. 
10 years from now, they'll be like, you know, those vaccine proponents are the same people who said a six-year-old needed two doses to eat in a New York City restaurant. And what are you going to say? I'm going to be like, God, yeah, they did. They did do that. They did do that. But this one is good. I swear to you, this one is better. You know, in the future, there'll be some new one. But I'm like, this one is good, but they didn't do that. I really told them not to do that. That was really crazy. Okay. Uh, last question. Is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about that's been going on? Um, no, I think, I mean, I think those are the main things, but I, I think we need to really be thinking now about, about stopping as many interventions yeah, as possible. Um, we need to be thinking that, about the harms accumulating in our way and the benefits, and we need to be thinking at the global level and in the long term, um, and, you know, focusing on kind of short term things that don't really matter, you know, might actually make things worse in the long term. That would be my kind of general thing, but there's no other specific I think I agree with everything you said. You always say it so eloquently. That's why these videos are very popular. I'm glad we're doing them. I think we are a tiny group of people or maybe a tiny voices on the periphery of a conversation that's really taken on a life of its own. I'm very worried. I'm worried about, I mean, obviously the future of public health, how we're going to end this pandemic. These restrictions are addictive. I mean, once they do it, you know, I think was the last time that you and I were talking about when no, I was talking to somebody else about like uh it's probably 10 billion people have taken off their shoes at airports and I still don't know if that does anything. You know, it's so easy to succumb to doing things that, you know, you never know and they just take on a life of their own. Um, uh, thankfully, Omicron, it led to travel closures instantly, globally, all over the country, all over the world. Um, will it lead to lockdowns again? What will the future hold for a bad flu season? Will we have lockdowns? I think society has to grapple with the question that's beyond medicine. And maybe, maybe you want to talk about this, which is, what are the limits of the of the state? As you said, you said it eloquently on one of these episodes where you said, we didn't know that these were freedoms that needed protection because you never thought you wouldn't be able to go to the park and you never thought your kid wouldn't be able to go to a restaurant without certificates that prove who they are. And the party that actually correctly recognizes that requiring voter IDs to vote is is a, is a dis, dissuades honest voters from voting. They do not see that requiring onerous documentation to participate in basic societal functions is is an offense to people it has a great cost it will drive people to other political philosophies if you combine it with wealth inequality you don't know what you're doing it's a pressure cooker i mean i i, I think we're we're in a bad place from public health we're a bad place politically we don't know what the limits of the state are we might even need like new constitutional amendments after all this to really define what are the limits of what are the limits of this power who decides and and I think I also view this from the point of view of somebody who really understands a lot of things I don't understand well, but I really understand medical evidence and data. And I know you do too, because that's what I've been doing for so many years. And so I know, I know that some of that stuff doesn't work. And I was like, I know it doesn't do anything. I literally, we studied this so many contexts. We've written books on this topic, medical reversal. We've done all this work. We've done so much work to prove that like people can be seduced by things that don't work. And if you combine that with the brute force of the state, you are a tyrant, I think, to some degree. Um, and I really worry. And, and eventually somebody's going to sniff out what you're up to. And I think they're going to be a backlash will be even worse than the, the problem itself. Yeah, that's right. So I, mean, I, I, mean, I think there's room for there's going to be room for a book on public health reversals if you have the appetite to write one. <laughs> you know, yeah. People are going to change their mind about a lot of these in interventions that seem to be plausible, seem to be you know, something we should do, but actually the evidence suggests that they don't work, just like in clinical interventions. Yes. Um, but the broader thing is, uh, yeah, there's, it's hard to deny that there's been an authoritarian turn in public health and in many societies, not all societies, but many societies. 
And it's it's impossible to deny that there's been a massive increase in inequality. And there was already pretty disastrous levels of inequality in many places. And we know as kind of healthcare people that that makes people's health worse in the long term, but also yeah, can lead to kind of anger, political disruption and so on. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, tyranny, you know, what, what do we mean by tyranny? I mean, tyranny is a term that comes from ancient Greece that was a kind of threat to democracy when one person or a small number of people could make arbitrary decisions about the whole population that couldn't be challenged. Um, and I think we do need to set limits on, on public health uh, powers. And, you know, those limits have to come from wider society. They have to come from the public. They have to come from a discussion about how much we value health versus how much we value freedom and fairness and other important values. And at the, at the bare minimum, you know, the public has a right to know who's making the decisions, mm-hmm. what are their conflicts of interest, uh, and what's the evidence that those decisions are based on. And if there's not very good evidence, what's the plan to collect evidence? And I think, like, ethically speaking, that's the bare minimum we should require. And we haven't seen a lot of that. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of room for reform in, um, in public health and public health ethics. Um, and then it's like, well, how do pandemics end? Um, and you know, my colleague, George Harriet and I, we wrote this paper looking at historical pandemics. And, uh, you know, to paraphrase T.S. Eliot, you know, pandemics end not with a bang, but with a whimper. You have a, a couple of really big waves. There's a terrible kind of impact on society. And then gradually it becomes an endemic virus with, you know, small seasonal fluctuations and so on. And we shouldn't be responding to the kind of small seasonal fluctuations of what's now a predominantly mild virus the same way we responded to at the start. And I, I don't necessarily think the authoritarian response was always justified at the start, mm. but it's but it's even less justified now. Um, and and if we you know we need a principled way of stepping that down, and the only way of doing that is yeah is yeah, democratic due process and yeah, being clear about what evidence our decisions are based on, because otherwise there's a real risk of tyranny of one kind or another. Zebian Rojic, uh, it's a pleasure talking with you, and uh, hope to see you on the other side. Yeah, thanks. Likewise. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.